When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, October 1st, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jim Bianco, Bianco Research. Jim, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you back. I should say right at the top of the show, you're a Chicago guy. You couldn't be with us at the Real Vision party last night in New York City. So much fun. You would have had a blast. Yeah, it sounds like it would have been sleep until 1.30 in the morning, I guess, if I was there, or 1.30 in the afternoon if I was there. <laughs> yeah. Some of us had to be in our first meeting for Real Vision at 10 a.m., which is, it was tough. It was tough. Uh, but incredible, just the subscribers that we met, uh, just how cool and sophisticated and smart and interesting they were. A great room full of people. And thank everyone who came out, uh, people, particularly people who flew from across the country uh, to be here with us. It was a great party. Jim, that said, it's a busy day in markets, busy day in crypto. Let's jump right in. What are you looking at right now? Give us your 50,000-foot overview of what's happening in the macro world in the capital markets. Well, in the macro world, I think that there's two big stories going on. Story one is inflation and the economy and what its direction is. And it seems like inflation up in the economy slowing. And then story number two is the histrionics in Washington and they're looking more and more like they are becoming a real issue. Let me start with story one, with inflation. PCE numbers came out today. They were the strongest in 30 years. The inflation rate is up. Jay Powell this week already admitted that inflation is being more persistent, transitorily persistent. I know he's not ready to give up transitory yet than he thought it was going to be, and it's becoming a real problem. And Today, we got some evidence of what's going on through GM. GM put out their third quarter numbers, and they said that uh, General Motors sold about 420,000 units in the third quarter, down a third from the second quarter, down a third. And the reason is the intractable supply chain shortage, the chip shortage, semiconductor shortage. They can't make cars enough to meet demand, so they're losing sales and it's impacting their bottom line. At the same time, they also said the average price of a GM car is now, get this, over $47,000 a piece for a GM car, up almost 10 grand in the last year. People are walking into the showroom. I want to buy a car. We only got three left, and we got five people that want them. Opening bid is over sticker. Where do you want to go with this? And that's what's happening with cars right now. We can't make enough of them. And it's also happening with used cars as well, too. So you've got, and you saw this the day before with Bed Bath & Beyond or Blood Bath & Beyond, basically announcing they can't get enough stuff because of the intractable supply chain problems. Their sales are hurting. People are walking into their stores. There's nothing there for them to buy or there's not what they want to buy. They're having to pay up for what they want. So we've got both slowing growth, slowing sales, and higher prices. That seems to be a narrative that has been unfolding in the markets for about a week or two now, which is why you've seen interest rates go up a lot and you've seen the stock market wobble. 
Yeah, boy, Jim, so well said. It's such a great narrative to tie together the data. We should say core PCE up 0.3% for the month, 3.6% year over year. This is X food and energy, uh, leaving out the most volatile components. Boy, when you talk about what's happening over at GM, I think uh, I think about uh, some of the uh, the uh, the fat Tony from the uh, from the Black Swan book, Nassim Taleb, talking about uh, Wall Street analysts versus Fat Tony. When Fat Tony sees that uh, a GM car, General Motors, not not Mercedes Benz, costs on right. average over forty seven grand, uh, and the data says, well, transitorily persistent. Fat Tony says, boy, that looks like inflation to me. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's exactly right. And I think one of the problems that we have in the financial media is. The financial media are so driven by markets. So yes, real world fat Tony types, CEO types would say, supply shortage, my sales are hurting, prices are going up. But the financial media says, what are you talking about? The stock market's at a new high, interest rates are low. That can't be this narrative. So they don't talk about that. It's only been in the last 10 days to two weeks or so that that narrative has started to swing around because interest rates have started to creep up and the market goes down. There's an old saying, another old saying, you know, that price drives news. And that seems to be where we are. But most people outside of watching tick by tick in the markets that work in real businesses, if you want to call it that, would have told you all summer that they're finding it harder and harder to get materials, harder and harder to get workers, and that they're going to, and their costs are going up. And they're able to pass along those costs because people are willing to pay up, whether it's for a house a GM car or something at Bed Bath & Beyond. They're just willing to pay up for it. And that's what you're starting to see filter into these PCE statistics as well, too. Yeah. Jim, that can't be a brick wall in front of us. I'm looking in the rearview mirror and the road's perfectly clear. Exactly right. Exactly right. So let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about what's happening in Washington right now with the budget. Uh, It appears as though the budget and the infrastructure bill, it appears as though President Biden is either heading to the Hill or there right now. Supposed to come up for a vote yesterday, Thursday. Uh, It did not because of some internal dissension in the Democratic Party. It seems as though there's a rift between progressives and centrists. Yeah, it was supposed to come up yesterday afternoon. It was supposed to come up yesterday evening. It was supposed to come up Wednesday. It was supposed to come up Monday. It was supposed to come up today for a vote. And I think you're right. what that's showing you is there's a problem in trying to get this done. And this is different because this is Democrats among Democrats, an inter-party squabble between the progressives and the moderates about what they want to do. The, the Republicans have said basically in their best Cosmo Kramer, I'm out. I'm not going to play with this game. That's a reference for you right there. Uh, And uh, they're going to let the Democrats play this out. And they can't come to an agreement with each other. The debt ceiling is tied up with this as well, too. If they cannot get a deal done, then, you know, we can have a problem with the debt ceiling. More and more, that's starting to creep into the markets as well, too. Now, the problem that I see is that the moderates, the Joe Manchins, the Kirsten Cinemas in the Senate, and the progressive wing of the Democrat Party have said some fairly definitive statements. I'm not voting for this in this form. They're not saying I'm not there yet. They're not saying I'm working on it. They're saying I'm not voting for this in this form. So how do you get one of these sides to cave? You have to give them something significant. And I've been postulating on Twitter, and others have too, that there's a bargaining chip hanging out there, and that bargaining chip might be Jay Powell. 
The progressive wing does not want Jay Powell. We saw Elizabeth Warren calling him a dangerous man earlier this week. We've seen in the betting markets last week, he was 90% chance of becoming renominated as Fed chairman. That fell into the 60s this week. Uh, it's still above 50%, but he's headed in the wrong direction. What I'm going to be clear here, what I'm suggesting is normally a Fed reappointment announcement comes in August or early September. It's October. We haven't gotten it yet. I think right. they're holding him back. He's a bargaining chip to give the progressive. I need the progressives to vote for a smaller spending bill. What are you going to give me? I'll give you Jay Powell. You can have uh, Leo Brainerd as the Fed chairman. I'll give you something really big and juicy like that. I'm not saying Jay Powell's done, but I do think he is a bargaining chip. Otherwise, they would have made the announcement weeks ago that he was their guy to basically take over at the Fed, and they haven't done it yet. I mean, does this suggest that there's some sort of fragmentation happening potentially in both political parties? I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren uh, probably agrees with Rand Paul on this, which is a strange sort of state of affairs, isn't it? Yeah, I, I actually do think so. I think it's it, what we're finding now is it's if you are the we saw this with the Republicans, you know, before 2018 under Trump, when you are the when you are the majority of everything, that might be harder to get a deal then when you have a split Congress and you're forced to make some kind of a bipartisan deal, even if it's for a handful of votes on the other side. And the Republic Democrats are having that problem, too. It's harder for them to agree among themselves than if they had to find a deal to, uh, with Republicans. Yeah. Jim, as we talk about macro issues here, about things like infrastructure bills, we talk about inflation, I want to jump in and take a look at a clip with Keith McCullough from Hedgeye, uh, sitting down with Raul on his new show, The Journeyman, uh, talking about PMIs, job reports, rate of change. Let's take a look at this clip now on Real Vision's essential tier. The two big ones are inventory and the services sector. So the services sector, if you just take it and quite literally put a rate of change map on top of um, you know the variant and, and its acceleration into August, what you see is that the services economy fully loaded with employment slowed. And it didn't slow like immaterially. It, it was a horrendous jobs report. Uh, we saw a series of diffusion indexes uh, slow on a sequential basis. They were already going to slow anyway, Raul, because we had the peak of all peaks in rate of change growth and inflation in the second quarter. They just started to slow at a faster rate in August. And anybody who, you know, uses a stochastic methodology like I do could have seen that. So what I'm saying is that, you know, again, COVID cases roll over and the services economy takes off. The bottlenecks start to come unglued, albeit at whatever pace they do. There's a whole bunch of bottlenecks, which we can discuss. Um, but again, those inventories start to be released alongside consumption growth. And those are the two big ones that would take my GDP model to 6%, call it year over year. We're tracking at like 5.82, if you really need to know the number. Um, but you know, to get to 6.21 or 6.5% GDP growth, and again, I think the Atlanta Fed's at like 3.5, you know, all I have to do is be right on inventory and consumption growth reaccelerate. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. 
Well, there you have it. Keith McCullough talking about growth reacceleration, his outlook for higher rates on bonds uh, and an outlook for nominal growth and inflation. Jim, let me put the question to you a little bit more broadly. What are your thoughts on this reacceleration and inflation? I know we've covered this uh, a bit, but do you see us moving into an actual regime shift here? Is this something that's going to be durable uh, or is it something that you see being uh, transitorily persistent? That's just got to be one of the most twisted phrases in the English language. Yeah, no, I do think that this is going to be something a little bit more durable. What has happened is for the last 40 years, if you looked at the average inflation rate of every expansion, every economic expansion, it was always lower than the previous one Mm. until this one. This one is actually higher than the 2010 to 2019 average inflation rate. Now, of course, it's not over. Maybe it goes back down. But I think it is a start of a trend higher in prices, a multi-year, decade, two-decade-plus trend towards higher prices as we move forward from here. And in that case, you're going to see interest rates probably start to move up. Quick word about that. Higher interest rates are neither bullish or bearish for stocks or for the economy. It depends on why. Because interest rates should approximate what's called nominal GDP, real growth plus inflation. Roughly, that's where you get get your your interest rate level. And of course, we're talking about expected real growth and expected inflation. Now, if all of that's being driven by real growth expanding, which is the typical Wall Street argument, rates are going up and it's a good thing because it means more growth, more jobs, higher standards of living. That's a good thing that rates are going up. But if it's being driven by more inflation as part of the nominal growth, that means lower standards of living. That means higher costs. That's not so good. And what I'm fearing is it's going to be more about inflation driving up nominal growth, which is going to drive up interest rates. And that's even you've seen it even this week and stuff that when rates started hitting 155, you know, stocks get a little bit weak in the knees. Not a lot, but they're they're starting to notice tech stocks, which are supposedly long duration assets, are starting to notice that interest rates are going up. And if they continue on this path because of inflation, it could continue to be a bigger problem for for the stock market and maybe the economy. Yeah, and by the way, that rate you're citing there, of course, is the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. Um, Important distinctions there about the complexity of this and balancing out nominal growth uh, with the rate of growth of inflation. Uh, Very complex topic. And by the way, a great statistic about the change uh, to a downshift post-recession in rate of growth. Yeah, you know, it is. there's a lot going on in this economy right now that we really don't understand uh, there was a paper last week by the Federal Reserve, uh, by an economist named uh, Jeremy Rood, who basically said that the Fed's infl- anchored expectations theory that they use to tell you that inflation remains well anchored around our 2% target, that, that doesn't work. That, they're, they're, that anchoring inflation is not really a thing uh, and that it, and that it could lead to policy errors. And add into that that we're in a pandemic uh, revival. We're in an era now with the economy that a lot of us are just feeling around in the dark. You know, there isn't a lot of, you know, uh, history that we could rely on. There's any history in some cases we could rely on. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the previous expansions were like this and the previous recoveries were like this. There's some of that going on in this economy. And then there's some of it that is so completely alien. People quitting their jobs, not wanting to go back to work, the supply chain shortage, just to name a few examples of things that are unique to this recovery cycle that we haven't seen before. Yeah. 
Jim, give yourself a big pat on the back. You and I, of any two people in the world, we've just gone 14 minutes and 45 seconds without mentioning crypto. I got the shakes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump in. A lot of news flow uh, on the crypto front. Uh, where do you want to start? Oh, well, let's start with the, chronologically with what uh, Paul said earlier this week. He talked about that he doesn't want to regulate stable coins. I think that that not only is correct, and I always thought that the Fed was like that, but let me back you up a week before that. Then when he was asked in the last question of his presser whether or not they would finally release this paper on central bank digital currencies. Now, to remind everybody, Paul said that this summer they were going to release a position paper, not a white paper, not in a, a schematic of how it's going to work, but just here's what we're thinking about with a CBDC, a central bank digital currency, which is a version of a stable coin. And it would be out this summer. Then it became, it'll be out in September. Then in late September, he said, it'll be out soon. So it seems like the closer we get to their target, the further away it becomes. And I think it's largely because the, the central bank is really struggling to understand the crypto space, stable coins, a CBDC, what they're trying to fix, how it fills in with the banking system. They put it all together and they're lost and they don't quite know what to do. So I'm not surprised that Paul comes out and says, I don't want to, I don't want to regulate stable coins. I can't even figure out how to put out my own stable coin, which is a CBDC, let alone being responsible for regulating all the other ones. Yeah, and of course, the other big news uh, with Chair Powell today is saying that he did not want to ban crypto. And we're seeing pretty significant price action right now on this. Uh, looks like we're just a skosh below 48,000 right now on Bitcoin, 47,880, trailing 24 hours up 9.6%, uh, just under 10% in trailing 24 hours and up 12.5% uh, seven days. So significant price action uh, there to the upside. I never thought they were going to ban crypto. Now I'm going to go all cynic on you here. I remember when they were really pushing to ban cigarettes about 30 years ago, and they decided, yeah, let's not ban them. Let's tax the hell out of them. And that seems to be where I think they want to be with crypto. They look at the crypto space as a potential place that they can get revenue as opposed to wanting to ban it. Now, of course, I'm being a cynic here. But also on the other side, I don't think they can ban it. I think they could maybe ban it from some of the on-ramps and off-ramps. But they can't stop people in the Philippines or Vietnam or Nigeria from trading cryptos. And they're going to continue to trade them whether we ban them or not. And so they're going to have to understand this is a reality that they're going to have to live with. Yeah, I think there's a lot of profound wisdom in what you just said there, Jim. First of all, absolutely, it seems like it would be something that would be almost impossible to ban. You could restrict it. Uh, you could tax it greatly. Uh, and there's also a sense that perhaps maybe this is a bit of an opening gambit sort of thing from a negotiating perspective. You start tough, you give a little ground. The exact quote today uh, was that he was asked if he had any intention to ban or limit the use of cryptocurrency, and he said no intention to ban them. Right, exactly. And I don't even know if the Fed alone also has the ability to do that. I mean, ban it, it would be an, a multi-agency effort through the SEC, the CFTC, the OCC, the Federal Reserve, some yep. of the state state financial services uh, regulators as well, too. And not all of them are on the same page right now. 
Yeah, spot on. What we do see, though, certainly the biggest jump since July uh, in price. You bring up stablecoin. This is an important thought, uh, thought as well. Uh, Wall Street Journal out today citing sources familiar with the matter, presumably within the administration, uh, citing the need to regulate stablecoin. The journal story cites specifically financial stability concerns. I would probably add also AML, KYC, SAR uh, as being things that the government that the administration would see to be in their interest to regulate stablecoins for thoughts there. Yeah, two thoughts. One, stablecoins are what worry them more than, you know, the uh, the other tokens and coins that are more objects of speculation because a stablecoin looks more like what the banking system does. Uh, it's a deposit, it's a transfer of wealth from one wallet to the other and it they're very very concerned that this could wind up eating away at the financial system itself. In fact, it already is and yep. to some degree. And then there's the big elephant in the room that really worries them, and that's Diem, which is the old Libra Facebook project. Look, whenever a, you know, and I'm going to channel my inner Rob Paul here, whenever a, a network with 3 billion people decides to come up with their own currency, a Diem stablecoin, they stop being a company and they start starting to look like a sovereign nation um, at that point because they have their own version of a reserve currency. Maybe that doesn't happen because it's Facebook, but do not underestimate the sheer power that putting out a, a, a stable coin into a network of 3 billion active Facebook users could have. And you saw this in 2019 when the original Libra project came up before it was even a white paper. Congress was holding hearings and freaking out about it because they saw the immediate threat it yeah. had to them in the financial services business. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't see DM as something that should worry them. Why? Because it is a company. It's headed by U.S. persons. You've got a guy named Mark Zuckerberg who's got a address in Palo Alto, California, or thereabouts with a net worth uh, in the centi billions of dollars. Uh, I don't think that these are folks who want to rock the boat. What they should be concerned about is the decentralized aspect of stablecoin creation. Uh, when you have U.S. persons who are tremendously wealthy, uh, they tend to toe the line uh, when you come down hard. Yes, that's true. But, you know, the they is also the current financial system, the current commercial banking system, the current wire transfer system, the current payment rails as well. They are very uncomfortable with something along those lines. And the members of the Financial Services Committee are very attuned to the companies that fall under their purview and yeah. what they want. I'm not saying they're bought or anything like that, but they also know that they're hearing from the banks, they're hearing from the payment companies, that this could pose an existential threat to us, and they and they crouch it in the words of financial stability. And let's face facts, Ash, we're talking about you know congressmen, so 90% of them have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to a stable coin to begin with. Yeah. And when they tell them that, that it poses a financial stability risk, oh, I understand financial stability risk. I don't know how, but I'll take your word for it, and I'll be very worried about it. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Right. You know, look, and I don't want to be too cynical here about their motives. I'm sure they're coming from the right place with this. But look, they're very much bought into the existing system, the existing framework, the traditional financial system. They talk to these folks. They uh, have lunches and dinners with them. Uh, They listen to that perspective, and they're very much bought into the system. It's hard for them to make that perspective shift. But I have to tell you, I think there's an argument to be made here uh, that regulation of stable coins could be a massive boon to the crypto industry. If I'm Jeremy Allaire running Circle, USDC, obviously the largest onshore uh, crypto uh, stable coin right now, I would be thrilled about this legislation that might be coming. Why? Because it represents a regulatory moat. I would love the idea uh, of some uh, regulation that effectively put up barriers uh, from a regulatory perspective that meant you had to hire a lot of lawyers and you had to go and do a lot of legal work. That's great for business, isn't it? It is cynical now. No, no, I think it is. And I think that the industry, to some extent, wants that regulation and that moat. See, here's the problem. Where's that moat? That moat is to the commercial banking system, to the traditional financial system. And what they're worried about, they being the regulators, are worried about is that they're going to allow this to happen that will eat away at the current uh, at the traditional financial system. Why do you think this is my opinion? Why do you think the SEC keeps telling crypto spaces or keeps telling Coinbase no on your earned project, you know, where right. you were going to be able to stake your coins and earn interest? No, you can't do it. And when they said why not, they said if you do it we'll sue you. Well, what 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 what's the rule here? Don't do it. And that's basically all you can get out of them um, right now, because they're afraid that if they give you rules and they talk about, you know, what is the definition of a, of a security, that the smart people at Coinbase and everywhere else in crypto land will run circles around it, and then they will moat themselves off from the traditional financial system and put the traditional financial system at a disadvantage. Here's the flip side. As soon as this gets regulated, as soon as there are uh, guidelines in place, for example, for stablecoins, if Circle and others uh, have very clear guidelines and they go and they do what they need to do, which I'm sure they would, given the regulatory environment they face, you know, why wouldn't my neighbor, Jamie Dimon, dive in with both feet? Um, because he would. He would. But what he'll find is that he's diving into an ultra-competitive, low-margin business compared to the business that he's in right now. It's not as competitive, and it's a much higher business. That is the traditional traditional financial system that he operates in um, uh, right now. So that's why he would do it. And by the way, Ash, uh, congratulations that you're living in neighborhoods with Jamie Dimon as your neighbor. Yeah, well, I'm on the fringe of the neighborhood. He's about a block and a half south. I I can see his building if I cant my head a little bit to the right. you know, but I am curious, does does Jamie Dimon care about margins or does he care about not being the business that gets interrupted? You don't want to be the uh, LP producer of vinyl records when we're going digital. I think they have no choice but to jump in uh, when there's regulation that puts up a, a framework for participation in the stable coin space. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, you know, if if that's the case, if they if they're saying if they're seeing the writing on the wall and they're saying we got to get in, um, we're only seeing some select examples of that happening within the traditional financial system that they're jumping in. Interestingly, today, and I think it's a significant story, Sockgen has come out, another French bank, has come out with a unique proposal, uh, which, if, if it follows through, can be very significant. Last year, Sockgen issued 40 million euros of a covered bond backed by French mortgages and you had to buy this token called an OFH 
on the blockchain and you bought this token called an OFH and that that token was backed by covered bonds. And that was at the time, it was considered to be kind of an experiment. And the experiment was, oh, this is a way that the TradFi world, traditional financial world, could leverage the uh, the blockchain and the crypto world in order to do some financing. And no one really understood it because the problem is it runs that where the crypto guys don't understand what the TradFi guys were doing, the TradFi guys don't understand what the crypto guys were doing. And they did it and it kind of just sat there. But today they came out, or yesterday they came out with an improvement proposal to MakerDAO, the, which, is the, which, which issues the DAI stablecoin, that if we take these 40 million OFH tokens and we stake them, can we get $20 million worth of DAI or 20 million euros, or the equivalent of 20 million euros worth of DAI, a two, you know, 50% uh, collateralized? Uh, and then they could use that DAI supposedly to go out and then either stake that or purchase other cryptocurrencies. In other words, what I'm talking about is everybody always asks, all right, DeFi is interesting, but how does the real world use it? Well, here's an example of how the real world uses it. A bank issues bonds. Those bonds are issued on the on the on the blockchain. They're backed by a token. That token is then taken to somewhere like DAI. It is staked as a stable coin. They get those uh, it's staked, they get the DAI stable coin. And then they could stake that and earn extra interest, or they can buy Ethereum, or they can buy any other token that they want, and you're merging the two worlds a little bit more. Right. The other thing that's interesting about their proposal is they did talk about that they need to talk about the legal entities to do this. Now, that's code for DAI is a maker DAO, DAO's in their name, is a decentralized autonomous organization. Other than the state of Wyoming, that's not a legal entity. So it's hard for a legal entity like a French bank to do a deal with something that is not recognized by the law as, an, as a legal entity. Because if they default on it, how does the, what's the uh, restitution that you go back to a man? But they're working right now, and that's why you have all these hops, that they're working on this now to figure out how can we do a deal with DAI? How can we do a deal with a DAO merging the two worlds together? So what else did we see come in the last 24 hours? More evidence that the, that the gigantic traditional financial world is kind of merging in a little bit to the crypto world. And you want that because there's a lot of money in the traditional financial world that would like to go in the crypto and they want to do something other than just open a MetaMask wallet, not forget their seed phrase or they lose their money. And they want to do something a little bit more sophisticated with that. And this is one of those steps. Yeah, extremely well explained and a very complicated issue, we should say. So uh, uh, MakerDAO, it is in fact a DAO. DAI, a decentralized stablecoin, doesn't function quite the same way uh, that the others do by being backed by cash or cash equivalent securities. Um, so a very clear explanation. By the way, for those uh, who are crypto novices uh, who may have gotten a little bit lost in the weeds, I think that the Jim Bianco Cliffs notes are the merger is coming, even though it's baby steps, 20 million here, 40 million there. Uh, you know, this is a major institution in France. SocGen is one of the national uh, national champions of the French economic system. Uh, for them to be waiting in suggests that this is something that people are taking very seriously and they're actually taking those initial steps, though there are, as you say, a great number of hops to deal with all of the legal, uh, technical, regulatory compliance complexity. You know, and they found in what SockGen is telling us is they're finding that it's worth their effort to try and make all those hops and try and bridge these two worlds. So if you didn't quite understand what I was saying, 
understand that a big major bank is trying to bridge these two worlds. And there's going to be more of this, not less of this. And this is going to bring more people into the crypto space, not drive people out. And all the talk of, of regulating it and the Chinese kicking everybody out and banning it yet again isn't really having any effect on, uh, on the price and the downside. But these kind of stories uh, have effect on the price and the upside because that's the, the path that we're traveling towards more adoption, not less. Yeah, I think that's spot on and very well said. Jim, as usual, we tend to run over here, but I wanted to jump in uh, and hit a couple of questions here because we've got a lot coming in from the audience. Uh, here's one that comes to us from Andy Hung, uh, and the question comes to us from YouTube. It's, what does Jim Bianco think about the chances of a Bitcoin ETF here in the United States? I think it's very high right now. Uh, I think that the uh, there's a lot of organizations like Fidelity that are pushing very, very hard to get a crypto ETF, a Bitcoin ETF going. If there's one worry I have is I believe, Ash, if you know, there's like nine or 10 proposals for a crypto Bitcoin ETF in the United States that once the SEC gives approval to one, they're going to give approval to the other eight or nine very fast. Right. And what is going to happen is you're going to go from nothing to like nine choices at once and you know the fear is is that none of them will actually achieve critical mass because we've just watered it down among too many options all at once. But short of that, I do think it's coming, and it's going to come sooner rather than later. If nothing else, you saw what um, Ark is doing. They're they're going to go to Canada and they're going to start buying them because there is a, there is a crypto ETFs in Canada. There yep. will be crypto ETFs in other countries. And we'll just we're just going to lose that business, and that's going to be an argument that the SEC is going to be hard to turn down. Yeah, extremely and well said. I just wanted to get one more question here, boy, Jim. All these questions today—they're all about crypto. Every one of them. Every one. It's I'm the most interesting thing going on right now. Yeah. Uh, so the question comes to us from DBL, and this is from the Real Vision site. Uh, hey, Jim. Any reason fear to fear regulating stable coins like money market funds? Would that kill the yields there? Interesting question. Yeah, would it kill the yields there? Not necessarily. It might kill the yields when it comes to if you're going to do it on a BlockFi or if there was ever a Coinbase Earn or something like that. But if you went purely into the decentralized world and you were staking your coins through an electronic wallet on an Aave or, or, or a compound or something along those lines. No, I don't think it's going to, it's going to really hurt those, uh, those yields as well, too, because that stuff's outside of their reach right now. So, right. but maybe, you know, uh, with some of the stuff that BlockFi is doing or Gemini is trying to do or Coinbase is trying to do, it might hurt it in those respects. Yeah. Jim, always a pleasure to have you on the show. This is it, the best of both worlds, macro, capital markets, digital assets, and cryptocurrency. Final thoughts as we end the show here on a Friday afternoon for the week. Yeah, I think uh, watch what happens in Washington over the weekend, because the longer they go without being able to agree, then the harder it becomes. And without them being able to agree on something, then the debt ceiling might become an issue. And if it is an issue, Yes, it will eventually get raised, but that doesn't mean it can't be messy and ugly before we get to that point. So we're not at the, you know, we're not at the code red point yet, but we might be by early next week if they can't get something together. Yeah, exactly as you said earlier, another bargaining chip potentially getting thrown onto the poker table. Right. Yeah, Jim, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great weekend. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.